You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. want to encourage you to turn to your Bibles. First Thessalonians. We'll start out in chapter 4, but then we're going to focus in chapter 2. And by the way, I'm not highlighting uh, scooters or advertising, but they are believers. And so if uh, you don't want to uh, go through the drive-thru with 15 cars, you only want two, scooters is your place. So just saying... Uh, so, First uh, Thessalonians 4.1 will be our start, but just to catch you up, um, if maybe you haven't been with us, we're in this series called When God Builds a Church, and why do we choose that title? It's because Paul labels the church a model church. It's the only church in the New Testament that has that honorable title. So a model church is a church we can pattern our lives after. Uh, our church... Uh, you know, many uh, generations later can learn so much. And so the first three talks in chapter one were all about their authenticity. Uh, Paul was just building them up uh, for what he saw happening because he only spent three weeks with them and then he got booted out by the mob. Remember, the jealous Jews raised up the mob and, and they had to flee, basically. But then we come to chapter two, and it's really a hinge chapter in the book. I was astounded as I began studying chapter two, what I learned. And basically chapter two, Paul puts on a pastoral hat. Often we think of Paul as the missionary, the hard charger. Let's let's take another hill, another city, another gospel advancement. But now he's writing from Corinth. And he's writing with a very tender heart caring for the church, nurturing the church, discipling the church. Why? So they could grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so for three weeks, we're doing a mini-series in the first 16 verses, and we're going to focus on Paul's leadership and what he valued as a biblical leader. And so last week, if you're with us, and if you have your Connect card, please check it out, his first value was commitment over comfort. Remember that? And we saw that. He gives testimony in chapter 2. Hey, I was in Philippi, got beat up, flogged, thrown in jail. No big deal. They sing praises to God, the kingdom advanced. They go to Thessalonica, and what happens there? Jealous Jews raise up a mob, and man, Jason's house is looted, and, and Paul and Silas and Timothy, you know, are really harassed because they're preaching the good news. So the first value was, don't value comfort, value commitment. Now, when you fly, I'm just curious, I'm a Delta guy. How many of you do Comfort Plus? Okay, none of us can afford to do Comfort Plus. All right, bad illustration. But here's the deal. When you go from Comfort to Comfort Plus, guess what? There's a serious increase. A few years ago, we took a family to Israel, and uh, we didn't buy the tickets, they did, and they got us Comfort Plus. So I just had a little bit of fun, and I typed in, you know, just cheap seats next to the restroom. That's where we sit typically. $1,000 difference from cheap seats, you know, to Comfort Plus. But then the couple that we took, they were up in front, you know, where you get to lay down and snooze and get caviar and stuff. Guess what happens there? You go from 1000 to 2500 to 5 k you know what it reminded me of? 
We like comfort, and because we like comfort, what does Delta do? Hey, comfort plus, just another 108 bucks, just another thousand if you're going overseas. Fat chance this guy's sitting in the cheap seats. So Paul says value, commitment, not comfort. Let's look at his second value. 1 Thessalonians 4.1, here it is. Paul writes, finally then, brothers, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us, how you must walk in, the key phrase here is, please God, as you are doing, do so even more. And so pleasing God is the second value that Paul champions in this beautiful epistle. And friends, the concept is everywhere in Scripture. Let me unpack that for you with a few verses. So if you're familiar with the book of Romans, beautiful book, 16 chapters, a theological treatise. First 11 chapters, theology, theology, theology. Chapter 12, verse 1, biography. Let's live out the theology in a very practical way. So here's what Paul says. Chapter 12, verse 1, it's on the screen. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice. And look at the result. When we do that, when we sacrifice our time, treasure, talent, and touch, when we offer our lives a living sacrifice, here's what's going to happen. We'll live holy and pleasing to God. And it's our spiritual act of worship. What a beautiful way to do life. Offer our lives today, holy, pleasing to God. Further, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul writes, Therefore, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to do what? To please the Lord, to be pleasing to him. The word aim is really, really targeted. It's like this guy this morning, Spencer, who led him worship, axe throwing. We're, we're aiming, we're going for the bullseye. This is our passion, this is our aim in life. Paul's aim was to please the Lord in everything he did. Then Ephesians 5, 8 through 10, building on this. For you were once darkness, but now you are in light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light results in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And then notice the next phrase. Discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, it takes time. It takes meditation on God's word. It takes uh, interaction with the body of Christ, spurring one another on to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We need to think through what pleases the Lord. What a beautiful privilege that is. And so now to our passage. This morning we're going to focus on one verse, verse 4 from chapter 2. So back to chapter 2, here's what Paul writes. He writes, so we speak not to please men, but to please God. This is a contrast verse. And why is it a contrast verse? Because there's tension in the church. What happened is when Paul got booted out of Thessalonica by the jealous Jews and the mob, there was a riot, it was hard. The jealous Jews influenced the believers in the church. They opposed Paul's message to the church of Jesus Christ, the gospel. And so they made a bunch of accusations that basically hurt the name and character of Paul. And so Paul is pastorally responding to the accusations. You know what one of the accusations was? That his ambition is just to be a people pleaser. 
Now, for those of you who are in the counseling world, you know that that is a big issue in our culture. And so I had a little fun this week. I went on to Google, and I just typed in the phrase, people pleaser. And I was just astounded, folks. 193 million hits. Guess what? That's as far as I went. But here's the deal, folks. Go online and look at some of the things on People Pleaser. You know what you're going to find? You're going to find medical websites dedicated to helping people with the addiction of people pleasing. So their indictment on Paul is a serious accusation. It's derogatory. This guy is here for selfish gain. He's not really here to care for you, the church, and promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then I went to Amazon. I said, well, I'm just curious. Are there any books with that title? And I don't have one in my library. And so I went to Amazon, and guess what? Boom, 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 boom. There's a ton of books. Some of the titles really got my attention. The Disease to Please. Gosh, I was just like, this is getting weird. Because I didn't think through the issues of what it meant to be a people pleaser. Not to say I'm exempt from it. We all struggle with this issue. Then the other one that really got my attention, and publishers, by the way, like titles, Breaking Up with People Pleasing. Interesting title. Interesting read. So I said, okay, enough with the secular stuff. I went to some Christian websites, and then I discovered a book, and I started reading it online, and it really captured me. It's a book by a gentleman that is very uh, devoted to Christ. He's been a counselor much of his life, over 20 years, graduate of Liberty University. His name is Lou, Lou Priolo, and I recommend this book. I read enough of it. The title captured me. People-pleasing, notice the title, How Not to Be an Approval Junkie. Folks, that is the essence of people-pleasing. The subtitle says it all, being taken captive by the approval of others. And so I would contend right now, what the opposition to Paul, the jealous Jews, was doing to the church was really trying to persuade them away from the messenger. Why? If the messenger's not good, the message is no good. And so Paul had to step to the plate. He had to respond. He had to help them think right. He's discipling them. So let's talk just for a few moments about people-pleasing, and then we'll go into Paul's response, and it's beautiful. People-pleasing is the temptation for any one of us to do or say what we think others want us to do or say. Think about that. Think about the motivation for the typical day or conversation. And that's exactly what these jealous Jews and opponents of Paul were accusing Paul of, and the church, some of them, a subset, were convinced of. So here's what Paul does. He says, no, I'm going to set the record straight as your missionary pastor, and look what he says. Paul responds, says, for we never used flattering speech. One of the accusations for being a people pleaser is he came in flattering. He came in with flowery words. His words are just a disguisement for selfish gain. Flattery, of course, is not gospel-centered. It's self-centered. Flattery is saying things face-to-face -to, -face to someone that you would never say about them behind their back. Flattery is not truth-telling. It's wordsmithing 
for selfish gain. And friends, I would encourage you, this is a very serious accusation on the Apostle Paul. Again, destroy the messenger, the message doesn't mean anything. And so the reason flattery or people-pleasing is sinful and harmful is that it becomes an idol to receive affirmation, approval, establish our identity and self-worth. Foundationally, then, we become codependent on what others think of us. But friends, here's the good news. I want you to think for a moment about how Jesus thinks of you today. If you are in Christ, guess what? You are accepted. If you are in Christ, you are absolutely valued and he loves you. If you are in Christ, your identity is fully and completely in him. You're saved, you're redeemed, you're adopted, you're part of the family, you're a child of God. We get our identity from Jesus, not from others. And so when we pursue this uh, people-pleasing thing, you know what it is? It's an exhausting treadmill in our life. And you know why? Because we'll never be able to please all the people all the time. Would you agree? So I'm going to open my soul to you this morning. I remember this so vividly. I was cutting my teeth in ministry. It was before Ellen and I were married. I didn't have my help meet alongside. I was one year into Cincinnati, and uh, things were happening, and we were thankful. And I'm single, a youth pastor, associate pastor. And I'd go home in the afternoon, and I'd curl up in the bed in an embryo kind of position, and my gut was just being ripped out. It felt like there was so much pain. Wound up in the hospital. And so they did all of those kind of things where you got the big bags that look like milk, ran that through, did the screen, all the x-rays, and I mean, a big procedure. And I'm like really concerned, and guess what? I come into the doctor's office. He says, hey, we got, got all the exams done. He says, uh, so what do you do for a living, pastor? Um, you know, your test showed up good. What's your problem? And so I said, I don't know, doc. I go home midday and my gut's killing me. He says, here's your problem. You're a people pleaser. You can't do it, pastor. You got to stop it. It'll kill you. And so one year into vocational ministry, the doctor woke me up. And next thing I had to start thinking through and recalibrating what it meant to do ministry and learn that, no, we can't please all the people all the time. And when 90 students show up for youth activity or nine, God is pleased. Just be faithful, Keith. And so over the past 30 plus years, working hard to say, Lord, I want to please you. Certainly we care for each other, right? Certainly we want to be loved and liked and build up each other. But boy, to make it your ambition, which they indicted Paul to be a people pleaser, is a lose-lose proposition. And so here's the question this morning. So how do we ensure that we live our lives pleasing to God and not focus our attention and energy on pleasing people, purposing our own affirmation, self-worth, and identity? And so that leads us to value number two. If you have your Connect card, I want to encourage you to consider this. Lead valuing God's pleasure, not people's praise. And friends, I, I know this in my gut this morning. This is harder than it looks. And I want to encourage you. Uh, Ellen was so candid with me uh, as we processed this talk for today. She says, boy, I wrestle with that, honey. 
get that book. It just is that good. It's genuine, very helpful to nurture your soul, very convicting on the front end, but very biblical to, to move you in the right direction on the back end. I believe with all my heart this is a real issue for everyone, young and old. It doesn't matter. It's just who we are. We want affirmation. We want to be built up. We need accolades. We need identity. All of those things. But it's got to start from God. Our identity has to be in him. And then when it is, all the other good stuff flows out. So in verse 4, one verse, I love this about the Bible. Uh, Paul hangs his hat on three truths to ensure we abandon people-pleasing and live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so I want to hone in on these three truths. Let's take a look. Truth number one, God is pleased to test his messengers. Now, that might sound like a weird thing, but it's really going to make sense. God helps us in this people-pleasing thing. And the first thing he does is he tests his messengers to ensure our motives, our methods, our hearts are genuine towards him. It's a gift from him, his testing, as we're going to see. So look at verse 4. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but rather God. Notice this next phrase, next phrase who examines our hearts. So again, Paul's pastoring right now. He is nurturing the church. He's discipling them. He's not hard. I see Paul lovingly addressing this false accusation of these jealous Jews by reminding the church that God is the one who tests. And he's the one who examines our hearts to help us live pleasing to him. Aren't you glad for that? That's why Paul said to the church at Corinth, chapter 11, before you celebrate the love feast or communion, examine yourself. See, see how things are really going. It's a gift. Now, we had a Bible study this summer. Uh, a gals were meeting, studying the names of God, and one of the great names in the Old Testament is El Roy. So I'm going to put the gals on a spot right now. Can I do that? I'll be in trouble. Any of you ladies who are in the study, I see four of them. Do you know what El Roy is? Did you cover that one? Go ahead, Lisa. Yes! Nice and loud. God who sees. Yeah. So I want you to think for a moment. Here's the beautiful thing about God. He is the one who ultimately can see our heart. Remember the story of Saul and David? Saul, man, strong, big, you know, let's make him king's warrior. And there's this little boy, David, shepherd. God looked at David's heart, El Roy, and he said, wow, this kid's got a heart for God. He made him king. That's El Roy. Jump to the New Testament, Revelation chapter 1. You open it. You have this picture of Christ, and there's many things to say about that picture, but eyes of fire looking into the church, examining, testing, and then he gives a progress report in chapters 2 and 3. That's Christ. Thank the Lord that he sees, he examines. And folks, one of the encouragements right out of the gate is to live in a manner pleasing to the Lord. Open your lives to Christ's examination. Let Elroy see who you really are internally, beyond the externals. Now, uh, Moses valued God's testing. Let me show it to you. Deuteronomy 8.2 
all the way back to the Pentateuch, remember that the Lord your God led you on an entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness. So 40 years of leading, right, to the promised land. Look at the purpose. So that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. It is absolutely clear that God is initiating the test. Now, here's the deal. God knows everything, right? He's omniscient. So it's not for his knowledge. It's for our knowledge. I taught three years when I was a youth pastor at a Christian academy. Loved it. But one thing I did not love was doing tests. How many of you teachers kind of don't like tests because you got to grade them and it just takes all kinds of crazy time? But you still do tests today, right, teachers? You still do tests? Yeah. Tests are for who? Not for the teacher, but for the student to learn and to see what they're learning. We can evaluate what they're learning. Why does God test us? Here it is. Tests are not for the sake of the teacher, but for the benefits of the student. And friends, circle the word benefit. God values testing. He puts us to the test for our benefit. Thank God for that. You know, King David valued testing. Let me show this to you, Psalm 139. He says, Lord, search me. God, and know my heart, test me and know my concerns. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. That's just a great prayer to pray, dear friends. Lord, you put the spotlight on me. You search me. Open my heart to you. It's exactly what happened in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah saw the Lord seated on the throne. He says, woe to me. I am a man of unclean lips. He got it. He saw God's glory. And next thing you know, he's seen his sin. That's the beauty. Abram was tested. Most of us know the story, but Hebrew gives us a real neat picture. By faith, Abram, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promise, and he was offering his unique son, the one it had been said about, your seed will be traced through Isaac. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead, and as an illustration, he received him back. You know what's beautiful here about Abraham's testing? Number one, he obeyed. He gave his best. He offered his life a living sacrifice. He fulfilled Romans 12.1. But you know what Abraham now is? He is the father of faith. He is a man who withstood the test. He's father Abraham. And today the world looks to him. Christians, Jews, and Muslims point back to the man of faith who passed the test. In both the Old and New Testament, the words translated test means to prove by trial. What is God trying to prove? It goes back to chapter one, genuineness, authenticity. It's a beautiful, beautiful concept. He's trying to show you and me, yes, that our faith is real and we go through the fire, we withstand the test and we come out pure. In Paul's case, God's testing proved to Paul and the church at Thessalonica, very importantly, that his motives and methods for ministry were genuine. He wanted to help the church not only receive the messenger, so they could receive the message. So Paul says, God tested me. 
He found me to be a truth teller. I'm not manipulating the gospel through flattery or selfish gain for approval. It's not my agenda, church. Now, there's a real glorious picture of going through the test and being found faithful. Most of us here know the story of Job, right? How many of us would like to live it? I would suggest probably none, right? But every now and then, we taste the fires that Job encountered. And so here's what Job says. It's beautiful. Job 23.10, yet he, God, knows the ways I have taken. When he has tested me, I will emerge as pure gold. Do you see the value that Paul and Scripture and God puts on it? God puts us through the test. He puts us through the fire. He puts us through the trials. Why? To see that we're genuine, but then we come forth as pure gold. What does that mean? In the Christian faith journey, it means being conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. So can I ask a few questions this morning? Do you value God's testing like Paul did? Do you say, God, evaluate my motives and methods for ministry? Make them pure. Make them pleasing to you. Has God's testing in your life purified your faith and brought glory to the Lord? During testing, will you, like Job, come forth as gold and live in a manner worthy of the gospel? Those are big questions. And you know what? It's open-ended. Not all tests, Jesus taught, end up well. Some turn away from the faith because the fire gets too hot, the tests get too hard. May it not be so for us, Westwood. So truth number two. Once God tests his messengers, then he is pleased to approve his message. And that's truth number two. God is pleased to approve his message. So let's take a look at that. Verse four again. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but rather God who examines the hearts. The word approve is a beautiful word, and sometimes the Greek word just lands the plane. It's dokimas or dokime. It's a beautiful word in the ancient world. And it's literally a word used for character. So God tests us to show us our character to prove that our character in Christ is genuine. I like pottery, um, been around that world for a number of years. And what's cool in the ancient world is dokima or dokimas was stamped on pottery to demonstrate that it went through the firing, came out of the kiln, and it was useful for uh, the community or the individual or family. So when we go through the firing, what does God want to do? He wants to use us. He wants to make us into a vessel, 2 Timothy 2, fit for the master's use. Now again, remember, because we got a context as king here, we got to remember Paul's critics... We're accusing him of being a charlatan, a greedy traveling preacher, which there were many in the ancient world who used flattery and deception for what? Selfish gain. And so Paul's pushing back, no, it's just the opposite. God tests me. He put me through the fire. Hey, when you go into prison in Philippi, when you just get flogged and you're singing praises at midnight, that's a pretty good test, would you agree? When you're three weeks in Thessalonica and a mob's raised up against you just because you're telling the story of Jesus and they boot you out of Dodge, 
I mean, that's a test, right? He says, guys, remember, I went through the fires. And my character was proven. I got one goal. My goal is Jesus. My goal is the gospel. And so here's the clear application to every Christian. God wants to stab dakimas on your life and mine. But you know what? The only way he can do it is to put us through the fire. The only way he can do it is allow us to be tested. And sometimes the tests are hotter. Sometimes the tests are more complex. That's what James talks about, the various trials of life, James 1, 2 through 4. But as we go through them, boy, Christ gets formed in us. And so here's the encouragement. When you and I embrace God's approval, we start the process of abandoning the need for people's approval. When we stand before the Lord and he says, Dakimas approved, Christ-like character because you're in Jesus and your identity is in him, then folks, we can start abandoning pleasing people. What a gift that is. Now, I want to highlight the seriousness of this issue. We kind of unpacked it initially, but I want to take you to at least one passage that shows the seriousness. And it shows you and I that we have a choice to make about people-pleasing. In John 12, 42 through 43, I want you to see something. The Pharisees were not confessing Christ. In other words, they weren't believing in Jesus, right? Why? Lest they should be put out of the synagogue. There was consequences for becoming a Christian if you were a Pharisee, a religious leader. You're out, man. You're done. And all the rights that went with the synagogue and Phariseeism, there was a cost. But then notice, why did they do it? For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. I would think when it comes to the foundational reality of the gospel in your life and mine, that's the choice. Will we suffer the double-edged sword consequence of saying yes to Christ at whatever it cost? What did it cost them? You're out of the synagogue. Your religious pedigree, done, finished. You're no longer a pastor. Over. Pretty serious consequence, would you agree? But folks, think about the other one. And I think this is 10 times worse. They wanted man's approval versus God's approval. And that's the choice you and I will always make when we wrestle with this people-pleasing issue. Paul says, no, man, count me out. I don't care what it costs me. I don't care what tests I'm going to go through. I don't care how hot the fiery furnace gets. Stamp me, Jesus, ducky moss. Character proved through the fire because I choose to please you. That's the goal. Now, look at the freedom when this happens. When we pursue the approval of God and not the approval of people, I love what happens in verse 4. Back to the verse. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, look at this phrase, so we speak, not to please men, but rather God who examines our hearts. The word speak there is in the present tense. We keep on speaking what? God's story. We keep on giving the gospel regardless of how hard it gets, regardless if I get beat up, flogged, thrown in prison in Philippi, regardless if the mob comes after us in Thessalonica, I'm going to keep preaching Jesus. Why? I'm approved by God. That's why I keep speaking. There's freedom then. There's freedom from what men can do to us, folks. So how do we apply this? Students, back to school, right? Are we going to confess Christ? 
Are we going to tell our story or like the Pharisees, we're going to retreat because there's consequences for being a Christian? I remember when we used to encourage our students to take their Bibles to school, not to be arrogant or to flaunt it, but just say, hey, you know, maybe during lunch or maybe during, you know, uh, whatever that was, study hall, you know, some, some folks would get together and have Bible study, maybe after school or before a, a Bible club. Are we willing students to say, I'm in Christ, I love God's word, and I want to testify for Jesus? And if there's consequences, accept those consequences. How about us as adults? The marketplace, our communities, our sports team, our family, our extended family. Are we willing to keep speaking Christ humbly, lovingly, graciously, regardless of the cost? That's the gift. What a blessing. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? God tested me. He approved me. He stamped donkey moss. And I'm just going to keep preaching Jesus. And so a few questions. Can you honestly say this morning that you value God's approval over man's approval? Or at least that you'll pursue God's approval over man's approval? That's a hard one. It takes a lot of soul searching, you guys. Secondly, does God's validation of your identity in Christ empower you to represent Jesus? If you're in Christ, keep speaking. Keep telling God's story. I was up early this morning and just uh, took one of those nice walks. It was just a beautiful, crisp morning. And I hadn't seen my buddy Jim for a while and uh, kind of sad about that. And next thing you know, I was heading back to the house and all of a sudden I, it was dark and this light's coming. I was like, oh, Lord, it's Jim. So Jim pulls up. I said, hey, buddy, hey. He hops off his bike and we walked for a while. And we just updated on the faith journey and how he's doing. In the past few months, he's had two deaths in his family. I've talked about Jim. He's a neighbor, and we've been reaching out. And uh, he wanted to talk about Jesus. And it was just fun. Keep talking, right? Keep telling your story. Keep building relationships that just are natural. Uh, Jim went down to the post office. I went to the house, and I said, Jim, I'm going to stop by in the next week or so just to check in. Haven't seen you in a while. And he said, great. Look forward to it. It's just this. This is our faith journey, right, to be speaking because our identity is in Christ, and we want others to share that identity regardless if there's consequences. Now, finally, truth three. God is pleased to entrust his ministry. You know, this is beautiful, folks. God tests his messengers, right? He approves his message, and then he entrusts us with his ministry. It's just a beautiful verse. I've just never seen this before. So back to verse 4. Instead, just as we have been approved by God, notice this next phrase, to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak, not to please men, but rather God who examines our heart. You know, the word trust in Scripture is a really big deal. Uh, the original connotation was to take care of something. In other words, Paul's entrusted with what? The gospel, and he takes care of it. He treasures it. He's not ashamed of it. He proclaims it regardless if it's prison or mobs, whatever. He's all in. Let me show that to you in Galatians 1, Paul writes. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel preached to me is not based on human thought. This didn't come from man. For I did not receive it from human source, and I was not taught it, but it came by revelation from Jesus Christ. 
He looked at the gospel as a treasure. He looked at it as a gift to be a steward and caretaker of this precious message of truth. And so remember, a steward is someone who owns nothing but manages everything. Think about Joseph in Potiphar's house. Genesis 39 through 50. I mean, 20% of Genesis highlights this guy, Joseph. He was a steward of Potiphar's. He didn't own anything in Potiphar's house, but he took care of everything, and God blessed him for his stewardship. So what has God entrusted us with? A lot, right? We summarize it simply here. Time, treasure, talent, touch. We all have commodities that are kingdom-driven to share with others. And what is the ultimate goal? Let me show it to you. Matthew 25, 21, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant or steward. You have been faithful with a few things, time, treasure, talent, touch. I will put you in charge of many things, meaning in heaven, come and share your master's happiness. Do you realize your stewardship, honoring your trust here, allows you to have so much more trust for all eternity? You've been faithful in the little here. I've given you this. In the parable, it's five talents, two talents, one talent. The issue isn't how much you get. The issue is what you do with what you have. And then God rewards. Wouldn't it be great one day, Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. I've given you this. And now you can enter heaven, your master's joy, because you've been faithful. We're doing good on time, so I'll tell you one final story. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, one of my all-time favorite verses. This is what Paul ultimately felt he was a steward of. It's the gospel, folks. Paul says this. Now we have this treasure, meaning the gospel, that's the context, in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. How many of you have heard of Qumran, the Qumran community, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Essenes? Anybody familiar with those guys? See some nodding heads, a few hands. Let me take you to Qumran. When you go to Israel, please stop there. A lot of tourists pass Qumran. You should not. Did you hear that? Stop there. 1947, the greatest archaeological discovery in our lifetime. Over 900 manuscripts from the Essene community were discovered there. You go to Israel, there is the uh, scroll museum that is shaped after the top of the clay jar. And surrounding this huge building about this size is what's called the Isaiah Scroll. They literally found the book of Isaiah in one of those clay pots that takes us back 1,000 years from the previous date of the Masoretic text. Does that make sense? We went back to about 200 BC, and we were able to compare the, that text to the current translation and mirror image. But here's the beautiful thing. This treasure, these 900 manuscripts were found in what? Clay pots. These things are fragile. They're just clay. Paul didn't look at them as a special vessel, but guess what's special? The contents, the scrolls. So can you visualize yourself this morning as a steward of a clay pot? We're fragile, we're broken. The potter shapes the clay, but you know what he's put in the clay pot? His treasure. And that treasure is the gospel.
Now we have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay. Why? So the magnificent power of God might be demonstrated in your life and mine. It's not the clay pot that gets the job done. It's the gospel, which is the power of God and the salvation. Amen? And so we close with 1 Corinthians 4. A person should consider us in this way as servants of Christ, as managers of God's mysteries. In this regard, it is expected of managers, of stewards, that each one of us be found faithful. May it be so. So, what a gift that you and I have the privilege to please God. Three things to consider. Let God test you. And when he does, and you lean in like Abram did, you become the person of faith. Let God, through the testing, the fiery furnace, stamp dokimas on you, approve you, and then in the approval of your character in Christ, you have the privilege to steward his gospel in your jar of clay. Friends, it's not about us. It's about God's work in and through us and the powerful gospel that transforms. Let's stand together. Let's pray. I just want to give you a moment to reflect on maybe some current testing going on in your life. Are you leaning in? Are you surrendering? Are you saying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done? Are you like Job? Oh, man, it's, it's hot in this furnace, Lord, but I want to come forth as gold. Do you value the tests as Paul did? Do you see God stamping dokimas on the clay of your life? Because you're in Christ, approved the character of Christ, being transformed. And can you say today before the Lord, through your testing, through your approval, Father, I embrace this ministry, whatever ministry it is, I want to be entrusted with the gospel to share the good news, to speak for you, regardless of the cost. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray it is so for each and every one of us. Be glorified. Be pleased. Help us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel.